Well, uh, you're, you're hearing that we're continuing the series, but then Doug got up here and read a passage from Ephesians chapter 4. And this week I was thinking, I, I, I have been referring so much to Ephesians chapter 4 in this series that I said, I probably should just, before we reach the end, at the end of this month, the end of the, uh, the series, that we should uh, kind of look at Ephesians chapter 4. So that's what I'm going to do uh, this morning. Um, I was thinking, as I looked at the passage, how uh, when I was a kid, a number of years ago, uh, when people would ask me, and they always ask kids this, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? Everybody asks you that when you were a kid. And, and usually, uh, amazingly, children usually have an answer for that. And I would always answer, when somebody said, well, you know, Timmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would always say, I want to be a doctor. Uh, you know, I want to be a doctor. And I, I think there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to be a doctor. I found out later, you got to go to school and you got to study, and it's like, no, I'm not doing that. I mean... Um, I'd like to be a doctor, but I don't want to do what, what it takes. Anyway, part of the reason why I think I wanted to be a doctor was that I spent a lot of time when I was a child in doctor's offices. I had uh, kind of moderately serious asthma, which doesn't make any sense as I, I'm looking at what I wrote, moderately serious asthma. That's, it's either, anyway, it, it, was, uh, it, was somewhere, it was somewhere in the middle there. And um, I, or I had every childhood malady that, you know, measles and mumps and uh, things that they don't even get anymore. And, and so, you know, I was around doctors a lot. And I also played a doctor in my first grade school play. And I loved wearing the uh, stethoscope and the thing, you know, the silver thing uh, in the head and, you know, the uniform and everything. So I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. But I also knew that doctors healed people. And I, I thought that would be kind of a kind of a cool thing to do. Uh, they, they had helped me. They had helped relieve my suffering. They had sewn you know, my wrist back together when uh, it got put through a plate glass window. Or rather, my sister drove me into a plate glass window. They, uh, they had put a, my arm in a, in, a, in a sling when I cracked my collarbone. Or rather, my sister pulled me down the stairs when I was holding a hula hoop. Same sister. Um, anyway. Uh, I knew that doctors were healers, and I thought even then that that's a really good thing, to, to be a healer, and I thought that if I could maybe be used to help mend people that were broken, that would be kind of a, that'd be kind of a cool thing, right? So I was thinking about it this week, and I said, you know what, in, in a way, I kind of do that a little bit now in, in what I'm doing. And the kicker is this, I kind of think that all of us are called to do that. All of us are called to mend the broken, to heal destroyed families, hurting hearts. I think God calls us all to do that, so kind, of, kind of a doctor. And I think God, by His Spirit, is calling every single one of us into the healing business. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 4. We are in this series of 1 Corinthians, but Ephesians 4 kind of dovetails right in there uh, uh, with it. And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians that we've been, we've been seeing, basically is saying every single one of you, all you Corinthians have been graced. You have been gifted, same word, okay? By God, through the Holy Spirit, who now dwells in every one of you. Nobody, no other church in the ancient world had it over the, uh, the Corinthians. Remember in chapter, chapter 1, he's kind of extolling the fact that they had these amazing gifts that were operating in this church, which is interesting, isn't it? That, it, you know, it, it, as, as, as bad as they were, 
a lot of times as Christians, God had gifted them, and, and the gifts were evident. They were, being, they were even being used, which shows that, you know what, you could be gifted, but still, you know, the fruits of the Spirit are kind of lagging behind, and we're going we're gonna to touch that before the end of the series. Anyway, um, basically what Paul was telling them, that church in, in, in Corinth, was that they had an amazing capacity to bring fundamental, holy, healing change to people. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that, you know, this giftedness and this gifting that the Holy Spirit gives us, it's not an attitude, but it's a capacity, a literal capacity to bring about healing. Remember what we said just a couple of weeks ago, that a spiritual gift is not what you are, it's what you do. It's not what you are, it's what you do. It's, it's not something that's just inside, it's an ability. It's a visible thing that you do that helps other people who have these crying needs and it helps to heal them what makes a gift a gift is whether God uses you as you use it to bring release and healing to others when when you are using your gift people are pointed in the general direction of Dr. Jesus okay and this is a calling that all Christians have Paul was saying that and he starts off in Ephesians chapter uh, 4 and verse 1, and you kind of get the feeling that this is a really big deal for him. Because he says in verse 1, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And I was staring at that uh, verse this week, staring at verse 1, and, and, and one word jumped out. Yeah, I saw, you know, the, the calling and, 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 you know, living a life worthy. But the word that jumped out to me was, was one of the first words used there. Paul, and I'm just picturing him, you know, penning these words. He says, I urge you. I urge you. You know, sometimes when the stakes are really high, when emotions are running hot, and, and you want someone to really, really know how you feel, you know what? You, you get physically close to them. That's what the word means. You know, the word actually means in the Greek to call someone to your side. To physically make a movement to get near someone. A little over a week ago, a dear friend of ours, a dear friend of our churches, Ed Banghart, who's the uh, pastor at Montclair Community Church, was involved in a very bad car accident. And he broke his ribs and he broke his sternum, which pushed up and bruised his heart. And... and uh, Ed already, for those of you who know Ed, uh, he comes to our leadership luncheon, almost never misses. He'll be at the, he said, he said he's going to be here Thursday. I said, if you come Thursday, I said, we're going to put cones around you and we're going to have yellow tape all around you so that nobody gets too close to you. But I went in to see him in the hospital. He has many other physical uh, things going on. And, and I knew this was a time that, you know what, I really wanted him to know I felt. And I got real close to him. And when you get real close to somebody, you, you can look into their eyes like never before, and you could see someone who's in pain, you know, the, the muscles kind of, they're twitching and straining a little bit around their eyes. But when you get close to someone, there's, there's this personal feel, there's this personal message that goes across. Uh, you do it with your kids. I mean, your kids get way out of line. And basically, what do you do? You get right up in their grill. 
You get right up in their face and you let them know exactly how you feel about things. You can even do it uh, when, when I've done it when you're not personal. To kind of draw close to people and let them know exactly how you feel. Somebody, somebody sent me uh, something this week, uh, a text message, and I thought it was so great. I thought it was so funny. And I sent back a reply in all capital letters. And when you read that, you say, you know what, this, this is different, you know. He's afar, but he's kind of drawing me in and drawing me near to his heart. Paul was saying, when he said, I urge you, he was saying, I beg you, I plead with you, take the calling that God has given you through the Holy Spirit and through your giftedness, take it seriously. Don't just think about it. Don't just take spiritual gifts tests, which I'll mention later, they're back on the uh, on the Welcome Center desk if you want to get one. Don't just take tests. Do it. Serve. Be about kingdom healing. See, that's, that's what Paul was saying. That God wants to accomplish something. So he's given us these gifts, and I love the songs we sang this morning. Strong in us. God is strong in us. See, we, I, I believe that. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is strong in us. But as Paul said, I beg you, I plead with you, take you know, that which God has given to you and accomplish something great and grand. We have to realize a few things. And I think Paul was kind of outlining a few things here in this in this section in Ephesians chapter 4, number one, he says that if, if you're going to take this serious, you got to realize that we are most effective, not singularly, but as a, as a group. We are better together when it comes to this gifting stuff. A couple years ago, we changed our insurance carriers uh, here at the church for the staff. And, you know, sometimes when you change the insurance, you've all most of you have been through this, right? You change your insurance, and it's like, you're with this doctor for eight years, and they go, well, just check. I'm sure he's on the list. He's not on the list. So what do you do? Yeah, you, you, got, you got to get a new doctor. So I, I changed from this guy. I was with eight or nine. I was finally comfortable with the guy, you know. And I, you, know you know, when you take your clothes off in front of somebody, you got you to, you know, you, you'd be a little comfortable with him after about eight years. So finally, I got comfortable with the guy. And, um, uh, and then I had a change. And I had to go to, to this group, this big group. And I didn't like it. I was really ticked off and... and uh, uh, I, I wasn't happy, and then I went to the doctor the first time, I remember, and um, he said, you know what, we need blood work, and I want you to see this guy, and I want you to see that guy. I go, okay, and I'm, I'm doing, thinking in my mind what I, what I got to do is now I got to make appointments, and I got to go again, and you know, the whole deal, and he said, well, so just walk out this door, walk about, you know, 10 paces to the left, and the first door on your right, and you get your, get your blood work right now. And I said, well, that's, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, it's like, I don't have to make another appointment, and he said, then I want you to see another guy down the other end of the hallway. Left-hand side, and I want you to go in, I want you to see him, you can see him right now. And I said, well, that, all of a sudden, I, you know, my mind kind of changed on this stuff. And I remember the last time that I went, literally the last time I went to, to uh, that center and to see my doctor, it struck me that I loved going there. Even though I was going and there's something wrong with me, that's why I'm going there. I just love the fact that I walk in and it's kind of like a mall. It's like a mall of doctors, you know? And it was all working together, all trying to make me reasonably healthy. Paul says we are one. That the body of Christ is one. And he says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Apostle Paul is saying that in the body of Christ, there is first this organic kind of unity. We believe the same things. We're from the same lineage. We have the same heavenly parent. We've been called by the same Holy Spirit. The unity of the church has already been created. We don't need to create the unity of the body of Christ, the church. See, the unity of the church is something that has already been done for us. It, it's, not, it's not worked out in committee. It's not worked out in a task force. Paul does not say that we need to find unity. He doesn't say that we need to grasp unity. He doesn't see, say that we need to create unity or to gain it. Verse 3 says this, Make every effort to what? To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the body is something that is kept. We've already been gifted with all these things that we have in common. We didn't determine it. We didn't manufacture it. We just need to keep it. Our spiritual conversion determined that we are all in the same practice, under the same roof, at the same address. We just need to keep it going. And we need to hold it together. And we can't afford to lose any of this unity. And when you think of your body, you realize that. And that's why so many times, you know, when, when, when you know, it's referred to as the body of Christ. Because, you know, when you think of your own body, you, you, need, you need to have to be part of it. You don't cut your finger off and say, well, that was the finger. That really wasn't me. No, that, that's, that's not right. You are in every part of you. You can't afford to lose any part of you. We, by definition... The church, we the church, by definition, are a unity. And Paul says we need to keep it that way. And that doesn't mean we all do it. Because in the next breath, uh, he says that we are a unity, but you know what? We're all real different. We know that. We're all different temperaments. We have different backgrounds. And certainly, we have different giftings. And sometimes we forget that. It's not that we don't see great need and that, you know, we don't want to help be healers. But, you know, so, sometimes we think, and this is part of our lower nature, I really do believe this, we think it's all up to us. We forget the teaching. We forget that we're all under the same roof. We think that when someone is hurting and someone needs healing and God wants to use us, that we need to do it all the time. This past week, and I, listen, I've gotten older. I've learned this lesson. It's taken a long time, and I've... I finally, I think I finally get, sometimes I, I morph back, but I think I finally get this, this unity and, and the fact that we're all so different, this, you know, this diversity. And this week someone came and, and, and I knew that they were, uh, they were really down, really down. And just, you know, life, you know how life kind of conspires against us? We're all living uphill, right? That's going to be one of our new sayings around here. You know, life is uphill and we need each other. We really do need each other. And so, you know what? I, I do what I can do, and you try to encourage somebody, but I knew there was somebody, you know, go out the door and to the left kind of thing, somebody in the body who has an amazing gift of encouragement. This person comes up with the right verse at, at the right time, used in the right way, and I, I, I gave a little call, and I said, you know what, would you call so-and-so? Because they really need, they, they need some encouragement. And I know that you are gifted God has graced you, 
as one of your gifts to do stuff like that. I mean, you know what, if I, if I had been just kind of like, you know what, well, I do what I could do. You know, I threw a verse out and this and, you know, what, what, what else do you want from me? They would not have received help that they really need. But it was here. It was already here. All I needed to do was ask. All I needed to do was reach out to the multi-gifted church here at the crossing. And you start to see that when, when that happens, you start to see that there is, there's amazing power in the difference and the diversity that we have. Unity and diversity. You start to see that there is as much diversity in this church and in every church and in the capital C church as there was in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have talked about this. This is a little bit review, but we need to review it again. Jesus had all the gifts. Every single gift that is talked about in Scripture, Jesus had it 100%. Think of all the things he did effectively. Think of how effective he was as a preacher. Sermon on the Mount. We do, you know, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones did, uh, I think he spent a year and a half on the Sermon on the Mount, preaching the Sermon of Jesus. I did did a long series on the Sermon on the Mount one time. Amazing preacher. Preacher who just, you know, touched the hearts of people. He was a, a tremendous counselor. People changed by his counsel. He was a wonderful friend. He was a model of mercy. He was a model of compassion. He was a leader of men and women who had desire, who wanted to go places, but they just didn't know where to go. They didn't know how to do it. And he showed them how to do it. He believed and knew that all things, all things were possible with God. He was fearless. He was an encourager. He was an organizer. You know, a lot of times with the disciples, it's like trying to organize cats, you know, and going in the same direction. They're heading all over here. But he was able to do that and change the world. His eyes were wide open to need. No one had to encourage him to see the needs of men and women. And yet, with all that, his head wasn't this big. He was the quintessential model of humility. All the gifts that we see displayed through the church in the world today, he possessed to the full capacity possible. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. He has distributed those gifts amongst the church. You are not just associated with Jesus. You are united with him. You are one with him. Verse 7 said this, Paul writes, But to each one of us, grace, gifts, have been given as Christ apportioned it. The word apportioned or measured means that he he has distributed parts, portions of his ministry power to every single believer in the church just as he sees fit. No one has them all, but you know what? Everyone has some. Spiritual gifts mean that each of us has a ministry ability that is part of the ministry ability of Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, part of his ministry power comes into your life. Not all of it. Some of us are good at some things and some other things. I'm not a specialist in all fields of healing, but I do possess some things. And when applied to the human heart, God has used me to bring some healing as he's done for you. In verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, From him, from Christ, 
The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. No one has it all, but we all got some of it. Like your different capacities are resident in different parts of you. I love my nose. It comes in handy, but it's not really helpful this morning when I'm buttoning my shirt. I'm glad I have my hands. We need each other. What's the point of Paul using the body as an example of how the gifted church should operate? It's just this. The ministry of the one Jesus has been divided up amongst the many. They are resident in different parts of the body. And when they all come together, you not only get a clear picture of the ultimate healer, Jesus Christ, but we begin to do things that he has done. When we are all together, we have tremendous power to do what Christ has done. And that is not just preacher talk, folks. It's not. And it's not my opinion only. Jesus once made this amazing statement, and this is an amazing statement. Picture his disciples hearing this for the first time. You're his disciples, and you're walking around with Jesus, he's doing all this stuff, and it's like amazing, and you're like, wow, you know, we get to hang out with this guy and stuff like that. Okay, and Jesus comes across one, one time in John chapter 14, and he makes this statement. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. Now. If you're a disciple, <laughs> this is what I'm doing to the guys next to me, right? <laughs> Preacher talk, that's all it is. It, I mean, we've seen what he does. That ain't happening. It's me. It's, it's not happening to me. It's de- it definitely ain't happening to you. I mean, you could just picture them sitting around, standing around doing that. It just doesn't even make any sense. It was a pretty unbelievable statement. I will do what... You know, I'm going to be able to do what we've seen in Jesus. They were rolling their eyes, but he wasn't done. He goes on in the same verse, and he says this. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. He will even do greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. If they were skeptical before, when he finished the statement, well, that was flat out unbelievable. In fact, totally unbelievable. I will do, Jesus, what you've been doing. I will do that. I will do, and you will do, even greater things than you've seen me do. What? That didn't make any sense. No human being could have done greater works than Jesus. Even the great apostle Paul, probably, you know, one of the uh, three, four greatest personalities in human history, I mean, as voted even by secular uh, historians and stuff, you know, even he couldn't do that. Even, even the great apostle Paul couldn't do that. But you know what? It's all remedied by, by, uh, by reading the text a little bit deeper. It's all remedied because you know what he says? He says in verse 12, he says, very truly, I tell you. But he wasn't looking at Peter and saying, Peter, you know what? I'm telling you, John. I'm telling you. The you is plural. He was looking at the entire group as well as other disciples that may have been there. See, that's what makes it possible. That's what changes the whole dynamic of what he was saying. He speaks in the plural. He was saying kind of, you all. Jesus could only be in one place at one time. Remember this. 
You know what? But if he sends his ministry power out to other believers, he's all over the place like yeast. The ministry of, of Jesus can permeate every culture, every town, every city, all at the same exact time. The entire culture can be transformed because every Christian has ministry power. We have gifts, and they needed to know that. They had been given gifts that were portions of the ministry power to affect lives. Every part of the body, every single part is something it does that only it can do. And when you all knit it together, you knit it all together, they become a team and a body of healing power. In the same way, Paul says, we can understand Christ's body. Think about, you know, in a sense, right now, Christ could be preaching in Livingston, New Jersey. He is right here. Christ is preaching here. At the same time, you know what he's doing through others? He's reaching the poor in Caracas. He, he is doing gifts of mercy and extending gifts of mercy to people in Paris. Elements of service to Abijah. Helps in Sydney. Exhortation in Montreal. All at exactly the same moment. And folks, he couldn't do that, Jesus, when he was on this earth ministering. People would line up a mile long, and he'd see him one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. But you know what? He doesn't have to do that now. Why? You know why? Because we're here. Because we are here. To prove this, he paints a mental picture in their minds that uh, anybody in that culture would not have missed. He said in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. The reason that verse 8 there is, is kind of in quotation marks because he's quoting an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament passage that he was quoting was Psalm chapter 66 and verse 18. Now, in order to understand what Paul's talking about, we need to understand a very unusual custom that we are not at all familiar with. Back in the ancient Near East, after a battle was over, uh, and the king and the army were coming back into the capital city, it, they, they had a march. And it wasn't just like, you know, back of a convertible and just kind of waving kind of thing. This thing was... It, it, it was the biggest event of the decade, whenever the king, conquering king, would come back. And it was, it was very, very organized, these victory parades. It wasn't unorganized. It, it, was, it was a highly organized parade. And first in the parade, the very first person, as it comes into town, was the triumphant king himself. He was usually carried on a platform, pulled by a golden chariot, and he'd be leading this parade. And there would be thousands and tens of thousands of onlookers along the parade route throwing flowers and literally worshiping him, ascribing to him the worth that they were ascribed to any other god because that's who he was. Behind the king immediately were his generals and his, his army. And they would be marching into the city triumphantly and people likewise would throw flowers and hail them, cheering wildly as they walked past. Then following them would be the captives. 
And they would be the generals and the representatives of the vanquished army many times, most times, in chains. And often the conquered king himself would be dragged along the parade route, also in chains. And as they went along, the crowd, tens of thousands of people would jeer and throw fruit and throw things at them as they walked by. And then the last thing, the very last thing in this highly organized parade were the treasures, the spoils of war, the gold, the armor, the jewels, the wonders of the foreign land that had been taken plunder. And this train would march through the city and the people would cheer and the people would sing. And at the end of the parade, the king would come out of his chariot and he would go up onto his throne that was set up and everybody would come and they would get as close as they could to him because they knew what was coming. And he would take the treasures and he would literally throw them as far as he could throw them into the crowds. Just throw them out. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is in a place to give you gifts because he has triumphed over all the things we just sang about it, all the things that enslave you, all the things that could enslave everyone in this world, and he is giving us powers over those things because spiritual gifts are a way to free people in a way that brings them closer to Christ, the ultimate healer, a way to meet their needs, in a way that they can be freed and not enslaved anymore. It is the goal to simply fill, he wrote, to fill the whole universe. Psalm 68 is a victory song. That's where Paul took it from. It's a victory song of the Lord uh, and victory over his enemies. And he talks about how God, the psalmist, marches down out of heaven to do battle with foreign kings and foreign gods. Then he talks about how he has won a great victory for his people and he's brought them out of bondage and he talks about bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. The people of God needed a deliverer and God himself said, I will be your deliverer. I will be your deliverer. In verse 17, he said, the Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. It's talking about how uh, God, the king, moves into his temple just as an earthly king moves into his temple. He'd do the same thing. Jesus Christ, when he ascended to rule in heaven, gave gifts to his people so that they could do the exact same thing. So that they could extend his rule. So that they could push out the boundaries of his reign and deliver his people to take what is And to make it even better, as we spread his influence through his ministry power in the church. What he's saying is in Jesus Christ, you know, and in his giftedness and that he has given to us, we are triumphant over all the things that enslave us and enslave everyone in the world. And he has given us power over those things because spiritual gifts, listen, are a way to free people. It is a way to bring them closer to Christ, a way to meet their needs, and a way that they've been, you know, haven't been free their entire lives. Christ is the one who did battle with the forces of evil. The Bible says that he died and rose again. He is the one who struggled his whole life and finally did battle and finally did win the victory on the the cross. And it is Jesus Christ who was raised again and is now ascended on high who is throwing out gifts 
from his ascended throne, he is throwing out gifts to the church so that his people will take those gifts and use those gifts to change the world. Ministry is not done just by paid staff because all ministers are believers and all ministers bring healing. They bring healing. When the people of God get together and take his calling to us seriously together, the Bible says he will do wondrous things. Realize that we are most effective together as a group. Then we have to realize that we are most effective when we have a common goal. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Stated very plainly, the goal is to bring everything under the headship of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, folks, listen, when that begins to happen, people are healed. People are healed. When Christ's kingdom power is distributed by kingdom people, things start getting healed. When Christ's rule begins to extend its way out, things begin to change. That is why Christ gave gifts to men and women. To extend his rule and to begin the healing process, the kingdom of God is extended when the power of Jesus Christ, displayed through the gifts of his people, becomes operational through the church. And people begin to get healed. Because when Christ gets a hold of things, whenever he is injected into the situation, things begin to heal. Why are things in such a mess? You know, why do you, you take out your news feed on your smartphone and, you know, within 10 minutes you're depressed? I mean, with everything that's going on. Why is everything flying apart? Why does it seem that nothing fits well together? Because we have been separated from God. That's why. We have been made and were made for fellowship with God. And we became out of fellowship. You know what it's like? It's like someone jogging on Venus. It's like an ice cream store in the Arctic. It's like a snowman in Death Valley. A, A goldfish kind of sitting there in one of the front seats flopping around. All of those things are in a place that they were never meant to be. And very soon, when you introduce those things into an alien environment, they begin to deteriorate very quickly, and they begin to break down. And ultimately, ultimately, it ends poorly. Because a jogger needs oxygen. A fish needs water. A snowman needs cold temperatures to survive and to thrive. We were meant to exist under the lordship of Christ. And when we are not, things break down. They do. But there's a happy part of this, too. Because when the fish is put back into the tank, when when, when the snowman is relocated back to Bismarck, North Dakota... When the jogger stops running on Venus and starts running in Verona Park, things begin to change. See, people were meant to operate under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, at the beginning of the Bible, we find that that there was a, a really, truly friendly environment. It was an environment that was always meant to be. You know, I love the words in Genesis 
with Adam and Eve, when, when he says, what, what kind of picture do you get in your mind? That they would walk with God in the cool of the evening. In the cool of the evening. You know, I just, I mean, when it's, it hasn't been like that around here lately, man, you can't even go out and take 15 steps without starting to sweat. But when it's, cool, when it's beautiful and it's cool and, and, and things around you are perfect and, you know, every now and then you catch a glimpse. We, we just, we, we, for, for 10 seconds we catch a glimpse of that. And it, it, feels, it feels like heaven. People use the term. Well, the weather is heavenly. It's wonderful. See, that's, that's the way it was. But then sin was in, interjected into the history of men and women. And what happened? They weren't walking in the cool of the evening anymore. Now, the very presence of God, you know what it brought to them? Trauma. Even, even hearing God's voice made them run for the hills. And you know what? They still wanted him, in a sense, because they remembered, they remembered what it was like. And they still needed him. They understood that. But at the same time, they were repelled by his very presence. Repelled. You know what that sounds like? Sometimes it sounds like us, doesn't it? You know, we, we, we want to be soothed by the presence. We want to be comforted by the peace of God. But we also want what we want. We want to be masters of our own souls. We want to decide what is right for us and what's right for our family. See, in the, in the garden, we see the beginning of the great malady, curvature of the soul that afflicts Every man and woman who has been born since then. Like a fish flopping and panting. You know, it's gills if you've ever gone fishing and you throw it on the deck of the ship and it's trying, it's trying to take in the air. Have you seen it? And the gills are kind of opening and closing and flapping. They're in an alien environment. And you know what? Mankind is floundering and mankind is flapping around. We are sick. We're sick. That's why when you open your news feed, you read all this stuff and you just go... The Bible says every problem, every single problem comes because everything is built to be under the management of Jesus Christ, but it isn't any longer. If you put something in under the management of Jesus Christ, though, if people begin to make him Lord, people begin to obey his word, you know what? Things begin to change. In fact, they change pretty quickly. Pretty rapidly, I've seen it happen. Many of us have experienced this. There's a relationship in your family. You know, it's going real poorly. And, 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 and you find out there's a lot of tension, and there's a lot of yelling. There's, there's bitterness. And, and you know what? There was a time when maybe you sat down, and you said to yourself, hey, you know, what is wrong? I mean, I'm a Christian. This is, this is a Christian home. Why is this happening? What's wrong? And you have had to sit down and say, something's amiss in the kingship of Christ here. Something is wrong. And we start saying to ourselves, you know, what am I doing? How am I not obeying? You know, how am I saying to the king, you know what? We're going to do it our own way here. How am I not obeying the word? Why am I holding this grudge or how am I holding it? Am I, am I failing to pray about this, pray for this person, to see this relationship lifted up? Am I neglecting to give this relationship priority that it should have in my life? 
And maybe, maybe you came to that realization and uh, you repented and you received the forgiveness of God and, and his authority became premier in your life once again. He says, go here. And you went and things began to change. You know, there are all sorts of things that the word of God tells us that we should be doing. In order to bring them under the kingship of Christ, what I have to do, though, is I need to start obeying. I need to repent, and I need to pray, and I have to ask the Holy Spirit to begin to come on in and to do his work. And listen, to the degree that I bring that relationship in my heart and in under the lordship of Christ, I begin to experience some restoration, restoration of the broken. Do you see that? Do we see that? We need to help Christ get a hold of things so that the healing can begin. That is our call. That is our mandate. You know, very early this morning, very early this morning, I watched a, uh, a video of what's going on in Venezuela. You've been watching this slow motion train wreck that's called Venezuela? And yeah, I mean, yesterday they tried to kill the president. Did you see that? They tried to assassinate the president yesterday of that country. And uh, I guess in, in the last week or two, this crew went out into the streets and to the hospitals and started reporting firsthand, you saw it with your own eyes, the sh sh shortages and the lines. People wait for hours on, on end. They wait on, on line for hours so that they can come home with this little bag of food. And some of them are turned away. Could you imagine waiting three, four hours? Then they go, I'm sorry, we're out. They, they, they looked at families who, uh, the mom and the dad in this one family, uh, they alternated having dinner. She would have dinner on a Wednesday, and then he would have dinner on a Thursday because they wanted to feed their son. And the dinner was no big deal. Believe me, folks, it was no big deal. They went into the hospital, and uh, there was a child, you know, about the age of my granddaughter. And the child was, was just cr crying. And the mother said she's been here six weeks, but there's nothing they could do for her. And they interviewed the nurse, and the nurse said, you know what, we don't even have antibiotics. We don't even have injectable antibiotics. We have nothing, so we really can't do anything. We'll let her lay here. And this little child was just crying, just crying. And as I, I you know, and then I went back, and I knew what I was preaching on this morning. And, and I, I said to myself, what an appropriate picture of the world. You know, there are some people who have plenty to eat. United States, most of us, we got no problem with that, folks. But the people that you pass on the street and that you work near, they are dying inside. They're dying inside, folks. They are suffering. They are in great need. See, the evil ruler of this world has brought misery to the hearts of people and families and communities, and he continues to do so. But there is hope. There is hope. You see, Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. And the Bible says from there he distributed his ministry power to his people in order that they may be healers. That they can start to see the healing. And when his people collectively heed his call that he has put upon them, you know what? 
things begin to change. And people are healed. Maybe you don't know how God has gifted you, but you are. I want you to go back to the Welcome Center, maybe, if you've never taken, you know, this, and take your 40 minutes, and maybe you get a little insight into uh, how God has gifted you, and then you can start using those gifts. See, we need to help Christ get a hold of things, get a hold of lives, get a hold of families, get a hold of communities, because only then, only then can the healing begin. We have been called. We all understand the stakes. Let's do it together. <laughs>